0: Uh, Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take this word and make it effective once again, and that by your spirit, Lord, you would bring comfort to your people, and bring assurance to those who doubt. And Lord, bring conviction and even disturb those who have not yet acknowledged you. Make your word effective this day, we pray, in Christ's name. Please be seated. So, how many of y'all are familiar with Hebrews? Yeah, this is a book we're studying with the Women's Refuge here of late, and every time I go through Hebrews, I like it that much more. But to be honest, there's a lot of mystery here in Hebrews. It's, to me, among the books of the New Testament, it's somewhat more distant from us. There's an awful lot of Jewish background in it that maybe we don't understand quite as well, but I think there's treasures there. And so, since that's where I was studying and the opportunity came up here, that's where we ended up. Let me begin by just asking the question when is enough, enough? You notice that's the title of your sermon this morning. When is enough, enough? You know, there was a farmer out laying in a field, laying on his hay bale, just enjoying life. Beautiful day, comfortable breeze, sun was shining he just thought he'd take a few moments and relax. He seemed fairly satisfied until this high-powered businessman drives up in his sports car, comes to a screeching halt, gets out, and begins to rebuke him and tell him, what are you doing? Wasting a day away there. You need to get yourself up and get at it. Get to work. Be successful. Achieve something. And the farmer simply said, well, and then what? And he went on to say, well, maybe you could increase your fields and your holdings and your barns and your houses and you hire more people and you can build an empire. And the farmer simply said, and then what? He said, well, then someday when all is done and you're successful, you could maybe sit back and relax a little bit and enjoy life. And the farmer said, but that's what I was doing before you disturbed me. (laughs) You know, so when is enough enough? They had uh, two different ideas, ideals of what enough would be. I read a, a survey several years ago, uh, asked nationwide from various people from all kinds of different uh, income levels, how much is enough? You know, How many do you figure were satisfied? That was like the lowest answer. The number one answer among all groups across all income brackets was just 20% more. I guess they figured that that would be just enough without being too greedy, but just 20% more. So how much is enough? Um, How much, you know, achievements are enough? I can't help but think we watch the NFL, the NBA, and everybody wants to win one more time. Everybody figures one more season, you know, how much is enough? Um, I have fallen prey to this a little bit. I have a bit of a perfectionist nature in some things, not in everything. Uh, But at work, you know, I'm a woodworker by trade. Don't have it hands-on so much anymore. But back when I used to do projects from beginning to end, I had a hard time finishing. Because there was always one more flaw, one more thing I could make just perfect. Do it just right. Do that, finally get a perfect project. And I'd end up ruining it by going a step too far. I had to learn when was enough, enough. Now, if you come to my house, you won't see that same issue in my yard. Uh, That is... Not my calling, desire, or any other way. Um, so again, how much is enough? Now, all these things have to do with worldly issues. And we're not going to deal with that this morning. But what about spiritually? It is a different question. The question now relates to the issue primarily of how can I know that I know that I have been made right with God? Or how can I, how can I be made right with God? When is enough enough? How can we know that we are right You know, good Presbyterians, I know if I asked you, at least if I asked your kids, what's the answer? Jesus is enough. Is he not? How can I know? How can I be made right with God? Well, Jesus is enough. But I really wonder sometimes, how much do we really believe that? How deep is your conviction on that point? This is one of those foundational things that if we get this right, it is freeing to do so many other things, to put aside so many other distractions. But I can't help but wonder, because of those I've come in contact with at the refuge, at my place of work, among our congregation, I sometimes wonder if we really get this. Christ is enough. It seems to me that It reminds me of a missionary I heard speak one time, and he was somewhere in South Africa, and he had to get, going to take a helicopter ride to go from point A to point B. And it was really windy that day. When he showed up at the airport or wherever the helicopter happened to be, he noticed this thing looked very flimsy, and it was strapped down to the ground. And he asked the pilot, why is this thing strapped down? He said, well, because on a strong, windy day, the helicopter might be lifted up and smashed against the rocks. And he said, but we'll be, we'll be fine. Don't worry about that. We're going to get in this helicopter now, and we're going to fly from point A to point B. And the missionary was understandably a little bit nervous. So as they're getting in and strapping on their seatbelts, the, uh, the missionary said, now, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Do I need to pedal? Do I need to flap my arms really hard to help out? You know, he wanted to know, is this thing going to be enough? I kind of, I think we do that spiritually. We can mouth the words, Christ is enough for our salvation. He, his life, death, and resurrection is enough to make us acceptable in God's sight so that we can show up in the throne room of God without fear, right? We can affirm that. But yet then we wonder, but what else do I have to do? Do I need to flap my arms? Do I need to cross an ocean? Do I need to witness to 10,000 people? By the time I die, what do I have to add to it? And that's the wrong attitude. That's saying that even though I can affirm Christ is enough, it's not really my conviction because as a man is, as a man thinks, so he is. So, is Christ enough? This is not an uncommon mistake. I mean, the Galatians, which we're not talking about today, other than to say that they thought they had to add to the work of Christ, did they not? And they reached back to their heritage and said, it's Christ plus circumcision. It's Christ plus obeying the law of Moses. Okay, so it was Christ was not enough. You can be a better Christian by doing X, Y, and Z more, by adding two. But that's the Galatians. What about the Hebrews? Um, You know, one of the things about starting not doing a series, uh, you know, Seth has had the privilege of going through Genesis 1. But I feel I have to set the context he can just remind us he's in the context as he goes week by week i have to give you a context so we have to talk about the hebrews the hebrews at this point the recipients of those to whom the author wrote the book of hebrews are not new believers in fact by now by now they may have been christians for decades and so that you know obviously can relate to many of us here today Uh, not new believers, early on in their Christian life, because they had maybe come out of Judaism or because they were members of the Roman Empire, whatever it may be, they suffered quite a bit. It appears that there was some sort of persecution going on where they suffered material loss. Uh, We see that in various places in Hebrews. But now, decades later, there's a problem. Like most of the cases, when a letter of the New Testament was written to a body of believers, there's a problem that he's going to address. Some people say the problem in the book of Hebrews is Christians falling away from the faith. I disagree. I actually think the problem in the book of Hebrews is that they had become spiritually lethargic. They had become a little bit comfortable. You know, their, their early times of testing were decades ago. They had become comfortable. And because of that, I believe they had become spiritually lazy. And so sometimes the author of the book of the Hebrews, he warns them in very firm terms about those who do not continue in the faith. But I think it's just because once in a while we all need a kick in the pants. I mean, think about it. When are you more in danger regarding your spiritual life, your spiritual condition? Uh, Is it times of testing, times of trial? Uh, I understand those bring... Uh, problems of their own. But I can tell you for me personally, the times I am more in danger are when I'm at ease. You know, uh, how many of us take vacations? And, and sure enough, day one, day two, day three, at some point along the way we realize we are totally out of our normal schedule. We have, we have emptied ourselves of all of our normal habits, uh, our daily constitutional habits. And so I find, after a few days, I haven't had my quiet time. I have not availed myself of the ordinary means of grace that God gives us that can travel with us so that we might maintain our spiritual health and vigor and zeal. And it's these times that I find trip me up more often. Now, maybe that's because I haven't suffered a lot. But I can't help but think that this will identify with somebody. They had become spiritually lethargic. They had not necessarily entered into any kind of major errors yet. But we're in danger of drift. And when we no longer hold fast to our anchor, we are in danger of drifting. And we most commonly drift back towards the familiar. The familiar to most of these believers in the book of Hebrews was their former Judaism. And so we see much language in here, much talk in here, about listening to the revelation of God that came before, whether it came through angels, whether it was delivered by Moses. Uh, There's much talk in here about going back to, or you know, looking back to the glory days of the sacrificial system, and the priesthood, and the tabernacle, and all that. And what the author tells them is that, look, you can't go back there because there really is no there there. Say, since Christ has come and fulfilled all these things, these things have been set aside. And so when he tells them there's no there there, it's not that those things were insignificant. It's not that they were wrong. It's not that they were not ordained by God because they were. But he's saying in Christ these things have been fulfilled and set aside. So there is no there there. And so all all of that was intended to be understood as that which pointed forward to Christ, that leads us to Christ does not add to Christ, that doesn't make him a better Christian for taking, uh, taking part in those things, um, but they were to point to Christ. Now, how many of y'all have ever been to Grand Central Station in New York City? Do you realize that that's not a station? Right? I didn't know that when I got there. But a station is where a train stops and then continues on its way. Grand Central is Grand Central Terminal. All, all lines lead to Grand Central. That's the Old Testament. okay? It's, it's like Grand Central Terminal. All lines point to Christ who came and fulfilled. And so those things were fulfilled and then set aside. So there's nothing to go back to. That's what he's telling the Hebrews. And sometimes he's telling them that in very stark terms, very firm terms. But that is the, 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 the heart of what's being said. And, and many people have taught that Hebrews tells us that Christ is better than those things. I've never liked that. He's not merely better, Uh, he's the superlative, but even that's not enough, because that's still a comparison, but he is the capstone, he is the fulfillment, he is the terminus, like Grand Central, he is the final revelation, he is the greater high priest, he is the perfect sacrifice. So what are you going back to? In your laziness, you're turning back to lesser things, things that really are not even there anymore. He's reminding them that these things cannot save. They simply point to the one who does save. They are the shadows, which means they are temporary. While as he is the substance, he is sufficient. He is enough. He is enough for you. So, in the first four chapters of Hebrews, we see Jesus spoken of as the superior revelation and that all that was said before was pointing to him and that we are to listen to him. In 5 through 10, we see that Jesus is the superior high priest, who, who fulfills this, he is the superior sacrifice in offering up himself. He has the superior ministry in the, temper, the tabernacle of God, which is the true tabernacle in heaven, of which the earthly things were copies. And in all these ways, we're just being shown that Jesus is enough. He is the terminus. So our passage, we come to this in chapter 10, after that long introduction, be a long introduction and a short sermon, okay? We'll make a trade-off. Just kidding. No, in our passage, we have a summary statement of all of these things that has gone before in a concise form, and it gives us—if you had to guess—how many points. Right? It's a good Trinitarian sermon. Trinitarian sermon. We have three points this morning, and let me give them to you in a concise form: futility, finality, and security. But let me tell you why we have that. Because one of the most useful things I was ever taught in studying the scriptures is how to find your main points. And you just do this grammatically. If you look at our passage, 11 through 14, you're looking for the subject predicate. You're looking for the noun and the verb. What's it say in verse 11? Every priest stands. Got it? Drop down then to verse 12. But he, and then it says all these other things, sat down. He sat down. Okay, every priest stands. He sat down. These things are in opposition to one another. And then we drop down to verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected. He has perfected. So these things correspond to our points. Every priest stands. Well, I'll explain it in a minute. That's futility. Christ sat down. That's finality. And he has perfected. That is your security. So futility, finality, and security. Futility in verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is the first part of a comparison we get here in verses 11 and 12 that are kind of hinged around the word but at the beginning of 12. And clearly elevating Christ as enough and telling us that what came before is not enough. This gives us a picture of the ministry of the tabernacle all the way back in the time of Moses. For some reason, the temple is not mentioned a whole lot in the book of uh, Hebrews. It's not that it's that different, but it's the tabernacle itself that Moses was told to build a copy of the things in heaven, and so he did. And he followed all the instructions of God, and he set this up. And the tabernacle was a beautiful place, though portable. And it was filled with very few things, but it included a list of furnishings, such as altars, lamps, tables, even the Ark of the Covenant. But there were no chairs. Okay? Every priest stands. There were no chairs. There was no time to sit. There was too much work to be done. If you went through the Old Testament and you found yourself a list of sacrifices and offerings that had to be done, you'd find things like thank offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, redemption of the firstborn. On that point, I tried to do the math, by the way. Can you imagine just just the number of sacrifices for redemption of the firstborn? If there were two million people in the wilderness, which is a conservative estimate, And half of those were women, there's a million, and it goes on and on and on. I came up with as many as 50 to 53 births a day of firstborn, just based on sheer numbers. Okay, but every one of those on the proper day, according to the law, had to bring a sacrifice to the temple to redeem the firstborn because the firstborn belonged to God. So can you imagine starting your day off with the morning sacrifices and then 53 newborn sacrifices that day? And then people bringing their thank offerings, their guilt offerings, their sin offerings, and then finishing the day with the evening sacrifices while the next set of priests was coming in, getting ready for the morning sacrifice the next day. They never stopped. They never stopped. Even the high priest who once a year is all would go into the Holy of Holies for the sacrifice of atonement, not only for his own sins, but for the sins of the people. Even he, that one time a year, what happened when he was done? Then there was next year. Okay, these sacrifices never ended. So, you go through the list of sacrifices, the number of sacrifices. These priests were simply working round the clock. The work was ongoing, the work was repetitive, the work was continual, the work was without end. Without end. And this is given to us to show the futility of it. It's not that it was. Futility because of a misunderstanding because like most people like human nature seems to be we take the things of God and we misunderstand them at the very least twist them at worst okay because they came to the point where they began to understand these sacrifices as that which takes sin but the author here tells us in no one clear terms that in spite of all this work in spite of all the repetition in spite of all the blood that flowed like rivers these sacrifices could never take away sins. These sacrifices were totally ineffective for atonement. But they had not been meant for atonement in the first place. They had been meant for instruction. Okay? But the way they were understood by these people, the way they're being misunderstood by the Hebrews looking back to the glory days, was they thought these things maybe could make us right. It's due to a misunderstanding, due to a misuse. These things were totally ineffective for atonement. Now, We're not Jewish. We don't do this, do we? But do we? Do we approach the means of grace really as more means of atonement? I mean, when you fall into the trap of feeling guilty because you haven't read your Bible today, have you not maybe given it a little more than what it was intended to be? Have you not maybe taken your eyes off the sufficiency of Christ for you and put it back on how well you perform? I think we do. We turn these means of grace which God has given to us as gifts to, to purify us, to help us to learn to walk in holiness, to actually to draw nearer to him. And we turn them into this performance <laughs> whereby the performance of we, become, we think we become more acceptable to God, No, I think we're making the same mistake as the Hebrews. I think we have a wrong understanding which leads to futility because if you get back into performance in any way, shape, or form, then you have to go back to the question, well, when is enough enough? When is it enough? When have I done enough good works? When have I said enough kind words? When have I given enough in the offering? When is enough enough? And it leads to futility because there is no end. There is no end to it. You cannot measure up. That's point one, futility. Thankfully, it does not end there. And in verse 12, we move on to finality, verses 12 through 13. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins, sat down. One sacrifice for sins for all times. sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. The contrast here could not be more stark. I love that little word, but... In the Bible, that but is always turning the corner. You know, in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. Well, here, these things were total futility. Every priest stands, but he sat down. That's the summary statement. Now it tells us many more things, but there's the root of it. He sat down. And the contrast couldn't be more stark. Many, there were many priests, all working. There was one Christ. They worked unceasingly offering a never-ending train of offerings and sacrifices, whereas he offered one. They remained standing because they were constantly working, whereas he sat down. And really the beauty of that sat down is completion. Whereas their work never ended year after year after year. His, he, he offered one at one time, and he sat down. It shows a completion. Their work was futile And it could never take away sins, whereas his was efficacious or effective. It was one sacrifice for sins for all time. Do you see that this emphasizes completion, fulfillment, finality? Not just something better. Not just something better than what came before, because that almost makes us anticipate hopefully something better yet to come. No. One. Completion. Fulfillment. Capstone. Terminus. One thing is the completion, of fulfillment, and finality, and the power and authority to make it stick. When you go back to verse 12, He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down, but where did He sit? Sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward till His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. This is no ordinary seat. This is no ordinary place. When Christ finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority. He sat upon a throne. If you want an Old Testament picture of that, maybe consider Joseph, who sat at Pharaoh's right hand. said that nothing was done in Egypt except at Joseph's word. He ruled over all, sitting at the right hand of the ultimate authority. This is the place that Christ is in now, at the right hand of God, who reigns over all, exercising his authority on his behalf. And his authority of his own. So it is finality, the power and authority to make it stick. He sits at the right hand of God. This is also analogous to God resting after creation, just to tie us back to Genesis. You know, after the first six days of creation, God said on the seventh day, He did what? He rested. He had completed all His work and He rested. And that is a picture of God taking his seat upon the throne, having completed his work, just as Christ here has completed his work by offering up this one sacrifice for all time. So we see the futility of all that has gone before, and now we see the finality of what Christ has accomplished, where he sits at God's right hand. He has not only accomplished all things necessary for your salvation, he sits in the place of authority to make it stick. Do you see that? One of the things I find most believers that I talk to struggle with is this sense of assurance. But not only did Christ accomplish everything you need, he actually rules and reigns over all things right now to make it stick for you. He didn't save you to lose you, he didn't do all these things so that somehow that value or whatever would one day, you know, rust away. You know, it it doesn't happen. He reigns. He maintains. okay. This is finality. And this leads us to your third point. So, so far we've seen futility and finality, and now we come to security. And when I'm talking security, I mean, what do you think of when we think secure? Safe. Safe. Security. Security. Verse 14 is where we see this. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, most of you, many of you use the ESV, correct? So it's not those who are sanctified, but it's those who are being sanctified. You know, the idea of those who are sanctified just simply means those who are called the saints of God, those who are set apart by God for himself, and so the New Testament refers to them as saints. Those who are being sanctified really are the same people. So it's it's not a translational problem here. Those who are being sanctified because sanctification itself being a work of God in the believer identifies them as his and is the fruit of the work of God in you. So those who are being sanctified and those who are sanctified are the same group of people. The result of what Christ has accomplished by his offerings is stated here in no uncertain terms as final. For by one offering he has perfected. He has perfected. He has completed, he has done all things necessary to make his people acceptable to God, acceptable in God's sight. This, this is the doctrine of justification stated in a, in, a, in a concise form. doctrine of justification, according to our catechisms, the smaller catechisms, uh, says that justification is an act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ Imputed to us and received by faith alone. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It is all the work of Christ as this offering on our behalf to pay for sins. Imputed to us and received by faith alone. He has perfected. He has pardoned your sins because of Christ. He has accepted you in his sight because of Christ. And he has imputed to you the righteousness of Christ so that when he sees you, he sees you clean. He sees you free from the sin, from the guilt, from the stain. All because of the work of Christ. That's your doctrine of justification. But who has he done this for? He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or being sanctified. This is his people. This idea of sanctification is the idea of being set apart I think I already said that. Being sanctified obviously comes to the doctrine of sanctification, which in the smaller catechism actually follows the doctrine of justification, and it simply says that this is the work of God in the believer to renew them in the whole man after the image of Christ, and to more and more enable them to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. This is the work of God flowing out of justification. And the reason I took the time to define those, the reason I mentioned that the order of those in the catechism is such, is because I find a major error in believers that is related to this enough is enough idea of confusing these two doctrines. And that that debate goes back 500 years. But justification and sanctification constantly get confused. And one thing they do is they get misordered. And once again, when we subtly misorder these things... Then it becomes performance first and acceptance later. Then we take this whole work of salvation away from God and Christ and we put it back on our shoulders. And if you're like me, I'm not enough. I can't do enough. I can't be enough. And so we must keep these things in the proper order. It's a common problem. Sanctification is that which flows out of your justification. Not vice versa. God saves. Christ has done all that is necessary. Sanctification in order to be accepted is nothing more than slavery, which leads to insecurity. Sanctification flowing from the work of God tells me I am accepted and is a good gift from God and an evidence of true faith. But do you see the difference that that order makes? Instead of going back to a works righteousness, a slavery mentality, and an insecurity because it depends on me, it reminds me that God has done everything first and last to bring me to Himself, and He will never let me go, and He is still at work in me day by day by day to make me more and more like Christ. The order is crucial. Justification comes first. Now, Look at, again, verse 14, look at the tense of the verb. For by one offering he has perfected. This is a tense we don't really have in English. It's interesting in Greek. It's perfect, but it just means that it has been completed already. And some of the effects of it are continuing. He has perfected. It's a done deal. It looks at the action of the verb as an entire thing. Not piece by piece, step by step, but it looks at the work of Christ as done. It's a done deal. He has perfected. And then notice this amplification we get, for all time. For all time. Now, its it's most immediate meaning, for all time, means from now until then. Okay? From here until the end. But there's another meaning that goes with it. As if that's not enough, there's a more specific meaning that says it also means without interruption. I just found that a week ago. I love that. Do you see that? It's not just from here to there, from now until then. It's without interruption. That means every moment of every day, I'm secure. He doesn't turn his back sometimes. You know, we may feel that. Things get a little rough. There's suffering all around us. Maybe I have some sort of loss. Maybe I'm dealing with cancer. Okay, And I'm not, and I don't mean to make light of that but without interruption, secured by the work of Christ. Not on anything you do, not on anything you've done, not on anything you add to it. Secured, not just from here to there, from now till then, but without interruption. Our Savior doesn't take a moment off. We are not redeemed somehow, then unredeemed, and then redeemed again. No, we are safe all the time. All the time. From here until the end. Secured. And then remember in verses 12 through 13, he sat down at God's right hand and reigns until then. Secure for all time. Secured by his present work on our behalf. Secured by the work that he has accomplished, as we read in John, it is finished, but secured even by now. He's watching over. He's making sure the status quo remains such. You know, I'm reminded of the words of John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because he's sitting on the throne. My Father, who is greater than I, who has given them to me, and no one can snatch them from his hand. Security. Security. So when is enough enough? Christ is enough. You know, that's simple. But it's profound. For the child of God, Christ has accomplished what is necessary for your salvation. Failure to grip this just leaves us in fear, in insecurity. Eventually leads us to error, restlessness, despair, lethargy. Because if you're like me, when I don't feel like I can ever get to the point of doing up, I don't try. Okay, But conviction... See, we don't need to necessarily always know more. We just need to believe it better. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no secret here. Has God not made this plain? We don't need to know more. We just need to believe it better. Conviction here actually leads to assurance and invigoration. You know, you don't worry about how much must I do, but how much do I get to do. It's invigoration. I heard a long time ago that there's just not enough energy in life for too many passions. Now, that resonates with me because I'm not a high-energy person. And so I pick and choose what I give myself to. But when it comes to the point of, can I ever do enough, like I said, I give up in despair. And yet, when God convinces me that he has done it all, I am energized. So, so many of these things I think I have to do and I have to be are off my shoulders. And now I can give all my energy to serving him and his people. So there's not enough energy in life for too many passions, but settling this in your mind frees up a lot of energy so that you can love your Savior and love your neighbor as you ought to. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning. It's a great privilege. But in any group this size, there's somebody here who's who's not a believer. And so I go back to the beginning when we were talking about more worldly issues. You know, when is enough enough? One more achievement, the next million dollars, some notoriety that you've always wanted, a title. Okay, have you ever thought that maybe you're searching for these things to bring a certain sense of satisfaction is because you're a spiritual being made in the image of God and you will be restless until you find your rest in him. And when it comes to how you can be right before him, you don't have enough. That doesn't make you any worse than me. I don't have enough of my own either. But you don't have enough. You are not enough. You cannot be enough. You cannot do enough. You cannot give enough. You cannot achieve enough. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God, and yet you need to be acceptable to God. Back one chapter, the author to the Hebrews reminds us that it's appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment. So stop wasting your time, dealing with all these other issues and things that you're chasing for satisfaction until you deal with this one issue this one issue how can I be made acceptable to God maybe today I hope that not only have you sensed a void and you're seeing the futility of trying to fill it on your own do not harden your heart today you can't fill it on your own but there's good news God saves sinners He didn't come to call the righteous to himself, but sinners. And Jesus gave himself for sinners, and he offers himself to you in the gospel. Turn to him and be saved, and you might just find that some of these other things that never satisfy aren't so important anymore. It's God who saves sinners. You might find that that little void will find itself filled, because God is enough, and he sent Christ to be enough for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would just convict us of its truth and of its authority, because it is the word of God. May may it do its work today by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name, amen.